Dr. Charles Billings is a name renowned throughout aviation medicine and has been for many years. He was born in that beautiful city of Boston and after straying into music actually undertook his medical education in New York, graduating in 1953. Great year. Um, he saw active service in the United States Air Force between 55 and 57 and reserve service uh, for the, from 58 to 72. He moved to Ohio State University in 1960 and to a certain extent has maintained his links with that university ever since. Although he has from time to time made sojourns elsewhere, uh, being a uh, visiting lecturer and professor in many uh, establishments, uh, and in fact he's no stranger to this society having given named lecture here in the past. He also visited IAM and carried out some work there, which I at least still use in the lectures I give um, Professor Ernsting used um, the other week at one of the lectures at King's, I heard. More particularly, Charles Billings has been renowned for his work at NASA, particularly through the Ames Research Centre, and tonight he's going to discuss some of the lessons learned through that long and distinguished career, which he believes, and I'm sure it's absolutely tr true, will be a guide uh, to young doctors and physiologists entering uh, uh, sort of aviation medicine and physiology from now and in the years to come. So without any further ado, Dr. Billings. Thank you. I began my career uh, in aviation medicine within a few miles of this spot at RAF Manston. And it's a singular privilege for me to complete my formal career here 54 years later by giving the Stuart Lecture. I'd like to dedicate my presentation today to the memories of Air Vice Marshal Stuart and Air Vice Marshal Peter Howard, both men I knew, both had distinguished careers as commandants of the RAF Institute of Aviation Medicine, Dr. Stewart for 20 years, and Dr. Howard fast behind him for 13. I knew both of them. I had the utmost respect for their capabilities and bravery. I uh, thought, uh, particularly since I found out that uh, Sir James Martin was going to be here, um, that it was, it's a rather curious coincidence that um, that Air Vice Marshal Stewart um, earned his spurs in part by allowing himself to be snatched by a, uh, an Anson in flight, uh, whereas Dr. Howard uh, earned his mention in the Times by being blown out of a meteor at low altitude and high speed. Um, and I, th I thought it rather interesting that the two of, the two of them um, earned mention for exactly opposite reasons. I want to begin, however, by giving my thanks to the Institute for its t uh, realizing that it's no longer there, more's the pity, uh, for its teaching, its precepts, and its examples. Uh, to the Royal Air Force, and especially Sir Charles Souter, former Director General of Medical Services, for their guidance to me and support in many areas over the years. Uh, I would also thank Surgeon Vice Admiral uh, Sir John Rawlings for his help to me during my presidency of the Aerospace Medical Association and since and to the medical operations staff of the CAA, especially Dr. Ken Edgington, for their support of the aviation safety reporting concept and many other initiatives as well. A little bit about my background and experience. I'm, I'm a physician and a flight surgeon and a pilot, even if a wayward one in all three areas. Uh, I'll hope to explain that later. In my view, our primary job as flight surgeons is really quite simple. It's to help flight crew and their support personnel to operate safely and effectively in complex time-paced environments that can be quite dangerous. This talk is oriented more or less chronologically. Uh, I'll describe events more or less as I lived them. 
As uh, was mentioned a moment ago, I grew up as an organist, taught initially by my father. Um, my conservatory advisor uh, wouldn't let me take a biology elective in my second year of college. Uh, she said, nobody has ever taken a biology elective at the Eastman School of Music. She, she, also, she also said, why don't you take something useful like German? Uh, I was a stubborn lad. Uh, I've been told I still am. So I transferred to a small liberal arts college in New England and then was lucky enough, after having taken a modicum of science courses, to be approved for entry into probably the only medical school in the world willing to accept me with only a fine arts background. Uh, New York University Bellevue Medical Center uh, operated on a, I think, reasonable premise that with 100,000 admissions per year, you were almost bound to learn something useful there. Uh, I mean, how many medical students do you know who've seen all three kinds of leprosy on the hoof? Uh, I was later fortunate enough to secure a residency at the University of Vermont on Lake Champlain, which was about as different from New, York, New York's Lower East Side as it could have been. Uh, Dr. Amidon, my chief of medicine, gave his house officers a little time off to read as well as practice medicine that I haven't seen a lot of yet or since. Uh, some of that time, I will confess, I spent sneaking in an occasional flying lesson. But Dr. Amidon taught us a great deal, and we remained good friends for the rest of his life. The United States still had a medical draft in those days, and during my second year residency, I was drafted by the Navy. Now, I should tell you that I get very seasick very easily, uh, and I was a pilot. So I... Uh, talked with our chief anesthesiologist, who was a brigadier general in the Air Force Reserve, and he helped persuade the Air Force to swap me for another draftee who liked water better. <laughs> so in January, I found myself on initial assignment to the Air Force primary course in aviation medicine, which was, and that's a picture of the, our class, another major stroke of luck. My fourth bit of good fortune was that I was next assigned to a tactical hospital in East Kent instead of South Korea or North Korea, which was still a very unpleasant place to be. The last bit of this part of my story <clears throat> is that when we arrived at Prestwick after a very long prop flight from the United States, the airport hotel, which was kind of tacky, uh, was full. So the Air Force bussed us down the road and turned in at the Turnberry Hotel. <laughs> and that's where they put us for the first night before sending us by train to our assigned stations. I think all of us who had been on that flight began to feel that the Air Force couldn't be that bad if that was the way we were going to be treated. I arrived in late April at RAF Manston uh, my station for the next two years. It was a historic place, as some of you will know, in a beautiful part of England with all-weather fighters, a fighter-bomber squadron, an air rescue squadron, and a transport flight, all manned by people who were happy to teach us what the real world was like. <clears throat> they weren't quite as well prepared for this as they were for a war. And as far as I know, Manston hasn't looked like that since I took that picture. I was married the week before I left the United States uh, to a nurse who had taken part in the invasion of Normandy in World War II. Uh, she was allowed to join me during the summer, finally. Uh, her nine-year-old daughter was not quite sure about aviation after riding through a missed approach in appalling weather at Burtonwood. <clears throat> but we all got back to Manston by train, none the worse except for where. And we would have enjoyed our first summer together, except that I was sent to Schusterberg on the, in the Netherlands a few days later. I handed the car keys to my wife, 
our brand new Hillman, which incidentally shifts backward from all American vehicles, uh, and uh, flew across to my temporary duty station. When I got back, we finished moving into a Quonset hut, which had been the nurses' quarters during the war, registered Lee Ellen in a fine council school, and settled in for the fall. The council people, council school people, were lovely, and so were the parishioners of this little Anglican church. That's a, um, that's a Saxon watchtower, incidentally. Um, <clears throat> and they all just took care of us in every way they could. So we were immersed in our new culture from the very beginning, which is exactly what Lillian and I had both hoped for. I enjoyed several months of flying and taking care of our troops with the support of a very bright young RAF physician from Guy's with whom we've been friends ever since. Uh, he was married to a nurse early during our stay here, so my wife had a new friend as well. My next piece of incredible luck was an invitation uh, to USAF flight surgeons to spend our Independence Day of 1955 at the Institute of Aviation Medicine, receiving briefings on, our, on their work and meeting then-group Captain Stewart. I was simply fascinated by the IAM briefings. It was a whole new world that was opening up because I was already very deeply interested, although totally unschooled, in research. I met Wing Commander then, Wing Commander Ruffles, uh, Pat Ruffle-Smith, liked him immediately and resolved to try to get an invitation to return. I was successful and spent most of a week at Farnborough in 1956, then three months there in 1970 working with John Ernstein and his research team, and shorter stays until 1994. Uh, one small point, uh, in June of 1956, we obtained a year-old whippet puppy, this one, as a 10th birthday present for our daughter. Breeding, raising, showing, and later judging this lovely English breed has been our primary hobby for 50 years and has taught us a lot about social psychology, both of canines and more particularly of some of the strange people who own them. Um, but they've been a great comfort. I still have one. Uh, we used some of our, our leave time in England to visit and photograph many major churches and ruins in Britain. And I was generously allowed to pl play several important organs here, among them Salisbury and Winchester cathedrals and the Royal Festival Hall. During the Suez campaign in 1957, England was as we would say in Maine, uh, locked in a dungeon of fog on the day the army brought back large numbers of its soldiers. By the end of the day, Manston, which was the only open master diversion field on the island, was overloaded with troops, all, all of them armed. <clears throat> so we turned our USAF resources into canteens and barracks, opened the hospital for sick call, and spent the night taking care of them. We Americans learned a lot about contingency operations that night, and the troops were grateful for the, after, uh, for the attention because they couldn't get home or anywhere else because of the fog. My colleagues have joshed me for years about being an Anglophile. Um, it's not just that I've become an inveterate tea drinker and that I prefer English beer and gin, although I do. I consider it a great, a, a great compliment. You as people, your traditions and your practice of aviation medicine have shaped me and my work for well over 50 years now. Our luck didn't run out in 1957 when we left this fair and pleasant isle. We were genuinely sorry to leave England in May of 1957, but we took with us many very happy memories, some of which have lasted to this day. I, re I returned to my residency in Vermont, but I missed aviation. So uh, after another year of internal medicine training, we moved to west to Ohio uh, to the only U.S. and as far as I know, the only one in the world, non-military residency program in aviation medicine at that time.
The residency in the Department of Preventive Medicine at, at Ohio State was headed initially by General Richard Miling, who was the, the uh, senior, the rank, ranking Air Force medical officer for, in the reserves. He was responsible for instituting short courses for practicing physicians in aviation medicine, like the one seen here, and for initiating a graduate program in aviation medicine. Uh, Dr. Earl Carter, I must now say the late Dr. Earl Carter, because he died the other day, um, at, at Air Force physician and physiologist, was hired as chief of aviation medicine. And I've been a lucky person, but it was an incredible stroke of luck that I had two full years of tutelage under their guidance. My residency was to have run for three years, uh, with the final year being a practicum of, at some other facility, in my case, Love, the Lovelace Foundation. Uh, but our department head uh, let me know rather abruptly in May of 1960 that this was not going to be happening, and I inquired why, having no idea what I'd done wrong. <coughs> and he said, oh, well, Dr. Carter was leaving in July to go to the Mayo Clinic as director of aviation medicine, and that I was going to remain at Ohio State to run the aviation medicine residency program. I wasn't asked. I was simply told that this was what was going to happen and to go see Dr. Miling for details. Dr. Miling was as gentle, as gentle as Dr. Ash had been abrupt. He indicated that there would be some small increase in my very small stipend, but that there would also be a new aviation medical laboratory and that an altitude chamber would appear in due course, along with some money to purchase equipment. And to my astonishment, it all turned out exactly the way he said it had, it was going to. Uh, and I was a very shocked first-year instructor with, resident, uh, with uh, a new class of graduate students coming, um, all of that to play with. And since I was the only aviation medicine person in our department until John Dines, who's a physician and RAF pilot who's been kind enough to come tonight, uh, until he arrived. So I first had to figure out what I was going to teach and how much, or, and how rather, how much was absolutely clear, all of it, until I could find some help. But I was expected somehow to convey the essence of aviation medicine over two years to each resident, and then to support them in doing a research project in order to obtain the postdoctoral Master of Science degree we offered. This shows the content of our residency at that time. Now, you will notice that it is occupational and aviation medicine. Uh, the courses are admixed on this, on this slide. Um, Dr. Ash said he didn't care whether any of us took specialty boards or not, but if we were going to, we were going to be eligible in both aviation and occupational medicine just in case the bottom dropped out of one of them, as it has in aviation couple of times. The clinical course uh, involved every resident in periodic examinations of pilots under supervision. I'd, I'd like to just digress long enough to mention one medical problem case which I thought was of particular interest. A 37-year-old attorney who has permitted this uh, description incidentally applied for an initial class 3 medical certificate. His history was unremarkable except for three episodes of muscular weakness on awakening after a good night's sleep. In each episode, he found severe weakness or in one, one attack, complete paralysis of the limb and trunk muscles. This attack lasted for about two and a half hour, uh, days and subsided spontaneously over the next 18 hours. His physical, neurological, and psychiatric exams were otherwise within normal limits. <clears throat> we hospitalized him and stimulated an, ep uh, an episode of this so we could see it. 
His serum potassium levels during the resulting attack were between about 3.4 and 4.2 milliequivalents per liter, and he, his case was diagnosed as hypokalemic periodic paralysis. A low-salt diet was recommended, and he was also recommended, after thinking about it, for medical certification. On our argument that if he awoke with muscle weakness, he would be unable to fly until it subsided. Uh, if he awoke without symptoms, he was extremely unlikely to have an attack on that day. And after review of, of the case, the FAA Office of Aviation Medicine charitably con concurred, and he was certified. I can't think of anything that would have taught our residents more than having that happen. He's had, uh, my lawyer friend has had no attacks for over 40 years and is well and still working at the age of 84. All of our incoming residents were married, <coughs> several with children. My wife, Lillian, bless her heart and her memory, took over as mother hen, made the new families welcome, helped them get settled, and threw a great picnic for them on July 4th. And they still thank us for it. I read and prepared to teach and then started doing it. Not well, but, but somehow. Fortunately, our residents, particularly that year, were constructive critics, critics and it was they who really taught me to teach. Uh, they were a wonderful help. Our Department of Aviation also helped by enrolling the residents in ground and flight instruction at very minimal cost. And in exchange for this, I gave aeromedical lectures to their students and worked with them, uh, their faculty, when medical problems arose. With the help of some adjunct faculty from Wright-Patterson, Air Force Base, some from other disciplines at Ohio State, and a few outsiders, we survived, recruited, and over the next decade turned out some 49 capable young specialists. Um, most of them ended up in extremely respectable positions, including our, the medical director of the Civil Aviation, uh, International Civil Aviation Organization, our deputy federal air surgeon, and several FAA regional medical directors, seven flight surgeons in our space program, and the medical directors of several major airlines, including American and United and uh, out elsewhere, Air New Zealand and the Republic of China. Meanwhile, we did the best research we could uh, using anything we could, could grab. Uh, our new altitude chamber, uh, aircraft from our aviation department, this incidentally was, uh, which we, we used for research, uh, came from General Curtis LeMay, the common, uh, commander in chief of the Strategic Air Command. It was his private, private property, so to speak, until he gave it to the university. Um, there's some of the equipment, uh, we, we, it wasn't pretty, but it worked. I'm going to describe a few of our studies, uh, mainly to give you a, a feel for how broadly um, this kind of work can uh, can spread. Um, our first in-house study, sponsored by our, the U.S. National Institutes of Health, was of passenger health problems in jet air travel, which was then brand new in, except here in Britain. Uh, we performed eight studies over a period of five years. The first series of studies um, dealt with the altitude tolerance of 20 ambulatory patients with severe pulmonary impairment. They took a two-hour chamber flight at 8,000 feet, were asked to perform mild step exercises and brief pulmonary testing, as you see here. They were then given a normal a then-normal passenger meal. I, I, I've got to specify that. They ate a lot better then than they do now. Eight subjects could not tolerate the altitude because of hypoxia, hypoventilation, and in one case, fascinating case, gas expansion in a stomach that was entirely displaced into the left chest cavity. We terminated his flight early. <laughs> <laughs> Pulmonary, 
pulmonary mechanics at altitude were also studied in 10 patients with obstructive lung disease. Studies of ventilation mechanics were conducted at ground level and at 18,000 feet while breathing, while subjects were breathing 100% oxygen. Vital capacities were uniformly decreased at altitude, but all patients commented on the decreased effort of breathing at altitude. We studied the effects of altitude on pulmonary blebs, bully, and cysts in six patients with varying degrees of pulmonary dysfunction. Uh, and again, the patients breathed oxygen at 8,000 feet and 18,000 feet. X-rays of the chest were taken at both altitudes. The chest films revealed no significant uh, distension of blebs or bully, do we think, to extensive communications among these lesions. Again, four subjects commented on the, e the great ease of breathing at altitude. Studies were also performed on patients with various types of cardiac disorders, and in contrast to the 20 patients with pulmonary impairment, none of 24 patients with severe cardiac disease experienced any significant difficulty, and they all tolerated their 8,000-foot altitude exposures well for periods averaging one and a half hours. Other studies were conducted on patients who had had surgical procedures that involved introduction of air into the body uh, for the relief of otosclerosis, ocular diseases, including glaucoma, and ileostomies. In most of these studies, uh, our aviation medicine residents performed the research required for the degree, uh, their Master of Science degrees. Another, uh, getting away from the NIH studies, uh, a project for the Air Force Systems Command was motivated by the rapid decompression of a passenger carrying C-141 transport at high altitude. We were asked to evaluate the four passenger masks then used by the Air Force. Uh, they're shown here. Uh, we decompressed 80 healthy subjects from 8,000 to 30,000 feet, after which they had to recognize the emergency, remove the mask from stowage in the seat back pocket in front of them, don it, secure it to the face, and breathe oxygen. We found the standard Air Force pre-briefing, uh, pre-flight briefing was deficient in that it did not emphasize the need to secure the mask after donning, and less than half the subjects in the study performed that task. Two of the masks were also inadequate for the altitudes at which they were being provided. You may be able to see that two of those masks do not have valves. While we were doing this work, we learned that there were no data on actual decompressions breathing air then donning a civil aircraft passenger mask. Protocols for mask donning at that time involved breathing oxygen at altitude, then removing the mask and donning a test mask for evaluation from which they will also breathe oxygen. <coughs> this procedure is quite different phys physiologically from breathing air prior to and during a rapid decompression. Um, at altitudes above roughly 35,000 feet, the effect of an air-breathing decompression is much more severe and hypoxia comes on much more quickly. We recognized a need for a more realistic testing of the physiological limits of oxygen equipment for use by passengers at high altitudes. With the guidance and help of Group Captain Ernsting and the support of his superb altitude uh, laboratory staff, we conducted a series of studies of passenger oxygen equipment following two-second rapid decompressions from 8,000 to 35, 37, 39, and 41,000 feet, breathing air, with oxygen delivered through the equipment at either 5, 10, or 15 seconds after decompression. Six subjects, all experienced physicians, altitude physiologists or technicians who understood what they were getting into um, volunteered for this experiment. During their flights, they repetitively performed a simple psychomotor task, uh, the Getty task. The times to complete each task were recorded and used to evaluate performance decrements. 
Performance was significantly de degraded under four conditions. The decompressions to 37 and 39,000 feet with a 15 second delay in oxygen delivery, and the decompressions to 41,000 feet with either a 10 or a 15 second delay in oxygen delivery. Under each of these conditions, half or more of our subjects lost consciousness. Performance decrements was, were observed at 39 and 41,000 feet with even a five second delay in oxygen delivery. The results indicated to us that at, high, at flight altitudes such that cabin altitudes can exceed 38,000 feet, pilots must be wearing oxygen masks at the time of the decompression if they are to be fully protected in the event of an unexpected loss of ca cabin pressure. Um, I'm interested that that still seems to be a question uh, of some concern to the uh, to the uh, people in this business, because uh, Dr. Ernsting has recently been asked for some advice regarding just that. We did a lot of work on exercise at altitude, in part for the benefit of our physical education graduate students. Uh, one of these studies was a study for the U.S. Army to determine whether more efficient methods of physical training could help troops prepare if they had to uh, work or to fight shortly after getting after being deployed to high altitudes, uh, and the way it was put to me by an army brigadier general was, well, are you aware that the only reason the Chinese don't own northern India is because you can't boil rice at fifteen thousand feet? Uh, we conducted a three-month study of 25 of our college students taking various sorts of exercise training at the university one summer. After testing in our altitude chamber at Ohio State, they were airlifted to Los Angeles and then flown by helicopter to White Mountain, California, uh, for three week, uh, for 20 days of study at the Barcroft Laboratory. It was a, it's a lovely place if it weren't at 12,470 feet, um, but it, uh, it's a bit of a drive. After transporting them to altitude, which we, as I say, we did by air to avoid uh, any opportunity to begin to acclimatize, we were able to see the entire course of people from Olympic-grade athletes to sedentary people while they were at altitude. Interval training, that is high intensity, lower intensity, high intensity, lower intensity, which is used a good deal in the Olympics and which we used there at Ohio State, was more effective than the standard Army conditioning program, uh, no, no 40 mile runs, uh, in improving maximum oxygen uptake. Conditioned subjects performed better at altitude than, men, than more sedentary subjects, but there was much less difference between the two groups at altitude and also less difference between the groups in terms of heart rate responses to maximal and submaximal exercise. Even after a week of acclimatization at altitude in addition to their previous exercise training, 29% of our subjects could not complete 30 minutes of work at two-thirds of their sea level capacity. All subjects also did target shooting at altitude. The Army seemed interested in that. Um, <clears throat> their firing accuracy was significantly degraded during the first two days at altitude, especially in sitting and standing positions because of they had so much difficulty in controlling their breathing. We also performed at Ohio State what, to my knowledge, is the only study of ethyl alcohol in actual flight, uh, using an airplane uh, made available by our Department of Aviation, a Cessna 172, which we instrumented. We studied very experienced and less experienced but, st but still instrument-rated pilots at levels of blood alcohol of 0, 40, 80, and 120 milligrams per cent. Two of us did a preliminary uh, trial at 150 milligrams per cent, but we decided there really wasn't a need to do that. Uh, <laughs> after uh, the uh, other subject, was, who was a 20,000-hour airline pilot, 
came across the middle marker precisely on altitude, but he was 90 degrees off the runway heading. <laughs> Significant, I hope you can see this, I'm, I did my best. Significant performance impairment was found in both groups under the influence of as little as 40 milligrams per cent, and subjects lost control of the aircraft at least temporarily during 16 flights at 120 milligrams per cent. Discrete task performance also suffered at all levels. These findings were later incorporated in it, into the FAA's safety regulations, and they're still there. Uh, 40 milligrams per cent is uh, considered intoxication for flying purposes. And one more study. Um, in 1967, we were approached by James Beatty, an aeronautical design engineer, with a request for medical guidance during an attempted round-the-world solo non-stop flight he hoped to make in an extensively modified Schweitzer glider, powered glider. Uh, Mr. Beatty named the aircraft Love, a uh, contraction of low orbit, very efficient. He actually, uh, he's, he set several endurance and distance records in this airplane, including a 70-hour endurance record and a closed course distance record of just under 8,000 miles, which would, I'm sorry, 9,000 miles, which would have been allowed to go further, except that he had to abandon the flight because of a complete electrical failure late at night above heavy cloud. We decided to provide him with medical support in exchange for whatever physiological data we could obtain from him during the flight. We also provided him with advice concerning diet, exercise, sleep, prevention of hypoxia, and hygiene. And he demonstrated that during a two-day uh, two simulated flight in a, an enclosure the size of his cockpit. Beatty was an experienced aircraft designer, and this aircraft did have a theoretical, cap uh, theoretical capability of a 27,000-mile range, nonstop. He saved samples of all of his urine in a small cabinet, kept a log, and cooperated in every way we asked him to, including a number of things that weren't terribly comfortable. Our residents assisted, operated our altitude chamber uh, through a 30-hour simulated flight, which you see here, and continued med uh, medical surveillance through a two-and-a-half-day period of medical observation. For safety reasons, Beatty on this first trial allowed, uh, elected to remain over land, thank the Lord, during his actual flight, which was operated over a closed course between Columbus and Kansas City, which is a round-trip distance of about 1,280 statute miles. We obtained uh, samples of urine for later analyses of epinephrine, norepinephrine, and 17-hydroxycorticosteroids, which you see here, by the NASA Manned Space Flight Center in Houston. They had helped us to design the protocol for this uh, study. Beattie did seven round trips. Uh, can you see the, yes, the up and down things on the, on the top. Uh, he did seven round trips on November 7th to 10th of 1969, before he lost contact with air traffic control over Columbus when his, when his radios failed as a result of a complete electrical failure. He was credited by the FAA with a closed course record of 8,956 statute miles, which is 100 miles further than the existing piston engine distance record set by a Boeing B-29 bomber and considerably longer than at 70 hours and nine minutes than the then existing solo endurance record of, of 58 hours and 55 minutes. We were manning a command post and were informed of the fact that they thought he had a little problem. We decided to try to guide him to a landing with some ATC assistance. And although he had no navigation committee uh, capability because his radios had failed, uh, air traffic control kept him under radar surveillance and gave us radar vectors to join up with him over Cleveland.
He told us later that he was headed north because he had decided to ditch his airplane in Lake Erie to avoid any chance of interfering with people or objects on the ground. We were able to uh, pick him up uh, and lead him using our, our landing lights uh, to Toledo and through the clouds to a safe landing at Toledo Express, which we reached about dawn the next morning. Uh, with him flying visual formation on our land, on our landing lights. Both aircraft landed safely, and we were able to retrieve all the samples and his logs. After 15 happy years at Ohio State, the university hired a humanities person as president. He was not interested in supporting this sort of research frippery. <coughs> And after a completely unproductive talk with him, I decided it was time for me to leave. Again, we were lucky. We found out that both FAA and NASA needed physicians. And I got good advice, as always, from Dr. Ruffle Smith, who opined that, quote, no one lives in Oklahoma City. Charlie, you'll be much happier and have more opportunities in San Francisco with NASA. And I can hear him say, saying that today after 35 years. So, in due course, we packed and left, dogs and all, for the West Coast and the almost final chapter of this saga. We started out our life out there living on top of a mountain, in part because of our 15 dogs. But after the petrol embargo was lifted in 1974, we moved to a lovely place, still in the foothills, but a lot closer to NASA, where we lived comfortably for the next 17 years. I've often wondered whether most of the NASA Ames staff knew quite why I had been hired, given my career, which was checkered. But I rapidly grew friendly with this young psychologist named John Lauber. He was already a pilot. He was happy to teach me some psychology while I taught him a little aviation medicine. And we combined forces to do some interesting pilot performance research that incorporated both. As Ohio State had done, NASA eventually purchased a simulator for our work, this time a very good Boeing 727, and gave us a new laboratory in which to continue these studies. John was later appointed by President Reagan to the National Transportation Safety Board and then joined Airbus, from which he recently retired as a, as a senior vice president. For 15 years or so, we had a wonderful time doing aviation safety research for NASA. And I'm going to talk just a little bit about some of that research. When we first got to NASA, we met the chief of engineering te test pilot at Ames, George Cooper. Uh, George was about to retire, but he was kind enough to help us in our research ventures for several years. Lauber and I both had a fair amount of aviation experience, but there's no substitute for the depth of knowledge and wisdom of a true professional like this. And uh, that's one of the points I'm going to take away from this lecture. In 1975, NASA was asked to assist the FAA in securing input from the pilot community regarding safety issues in civil aviation. This followed an accident near Dulles Airport in Washington in 1974, in which a Boeing 727 hit a mountain during terrible weather while executing an approach. The NTSB's investigation found that an, another aircraft, a DC-8, had very, very barely missed the same hilltop a month earlier without the weather for the same reason, an ambiguous and misunderstood air traffic control instruction. The DC-8 crew had reported the near miss to its carrier, but there was at that time no mechanism to rapidly disseminate those kinds of serious safety problems to the community. NASA asked Ames what we might do to improve the flow of such safety critical information and wanted the, in the answer to that as soon as possible because con Congress was very concerned about the NTSB's report. So with help from Cooper and Lauber, I devised this protocol over a weekend to respond to the FAA's request. 
After a rapid trip through our management, we took the scheme to our headquarters liaison in Washington. We then presented it to every industry representative group we could find, and to the FAA, where it was very quickly accepted. So over a period of three weeks, came into being what is still known as the NASA Aviation Safety Reporting System. The ASRS has now received and studied over 780,000 reports, most of them of human factors issues. And I, I want to give you just a few examples to, to indicate how useful such reports can be. These reports are non-punitive and confidential and handled by an agency which has no role in the punishment of pilots who make mistakes. One, we received reports of icing problems, not on the leading edges of the wings, but just forward of the ailerons of a commuter twin turboprop, which rendered those controls nearly unusable. This problem required modifications of those aircraft. We received two reports of heavy transports taking off with an outboard spoiler fully deployed because it had been locked out by a mechanic working on it. Fortunately, both aircraft were lightly loaded and it was cool, so they were able with difficulty to return to their departure airfield. Now, why that happened, the control's position indicator on this particular aircraft displays most of the movable controls but does not sample the outboard spoilers. So there was no cockpit indication of the problem and the pilots couldn't see the wingtips. Uh, another one, a telephone report one afternoon from a New York air traffic controller asked for help in reporting a companion controller who was hallucinating while controlling traffic in the, in the New York terminal area. We were asked to assist him and we were able to assist him without violating his confidentiality or that of his companion, who was immediately hospitalized for treatment of acute schizophrenia. We also received several reports of approaches in which a following light transport aircraft became nearly uncontrollable because of wake turbulence from a leading larger transport aircraft that had previously not been thought to produce serious turbulence. Before doing anything else, the ATC people increased the minimum following distances, and as far as I know, that problem has not recurred. But um, one aircraft went to an angle of 120 degrees on short final. Uh, the aviation safety reporting system and variants motiv motivated on it is now or has been used to, uh, by 11 nations. More recently, it's also been adopted in one or another form by healthcare organizations within the United States, the UK, and other states. The delivery of healthcare, like aviation services, involves decision-making in complex, time-paced environments that can be dangerous to those it serves. And it appears that the ASRS model may have usefulness in many contexts involving risk and complexity. The system has become a recognized part of our U.S. and other national aviation safety surveillance systems. Great Britain's CHIRP system, which was in, implemented by Roger Green at IAM, came into being after examination of our program and data by Arthur Thorning of the UK CAA and his co-workers. Those information, these information systems are cooperative, voluntary, and non-punitive to anyone who chooses to report any safety problem. The SRS was developed by us, but Mr. Thorning provided us with the first truly independent evaluation of that program, for which, and I want him to hear it, I am truly grateful. I believe on reflection that the confidential non-punitive safety reporting concept has been perhaps my most useful de development effort in 50 years of R&D avia in aviation medicine. But there have been several others by my colleagues at NASA Ames, uh, which I had supported and helped to develop. I want to mention one or two of them very briefly. Dr. Lauber, in collaboration with Pat Ruffelsmith, there's IAM again, was primarily responsible for the development of the cockpit crew resource management system 
uh, of improving cooperation and coordination among aircrew members and thus air tra transport safety. This arose from a major simulation study of aircrew workload and performance that John and Pat conducted while Pat was a senior fellow at NASA Ames with us. CRM has now become an almost universal requirement for commercial and airline crew training, aircrew training, and there appears to have been a fairly substantial um, decline in the number of human factors incidents that have occurred during that time. And as with ASRS, uh, uh, crew resource management is also being extended to hospital operating rooms and clinical settings to help improve human error containment in medical environments. Dr. Lauber was also responsible for encouraging Army, Army Lieutenant Colonel Kirk Graber and Linda Connell in the development and of useful systems for the assessment of aircrew fatigue during long-haul air transport operations. Much of this work was done in collaboration with Air Commodore Anthony Nicholson at IAM, who performed field and laboratory studies on British Airways pilots to complement our studies on Pan Am pilots. Uh, I was invited to an FAA symposium last year that is attempting to uh, approach consensus on the fatigue issue, which we haven't solved yet with the intent of, in, of developing international standards for flight. There is a serious impetus uh, on the part of ICAO for such a standard now, and I hope it can finally be accomplished after 35 years on the topic since Group Captain Douglas Bader chaired the first Committee on Flight Time near, uh, Limitations. Uh, note the years. I must also mention one other thing, the invaluable support uh, given to me by Air Vice Marshal Ernsting, the late uh, Air Vice Marshal Freddie Hurl, and several senior personnel of your chemical defense establishment at Porton Downs in our efforts to coax the United States Air Staff to improve chemical protection of our aircrew. You people were well ahead of us in this area, and that was obvious to Dr. Cha uh, Alan Chambers and myself as advisors to our Air Force Scientific Advisory Board. But Alan and I went through a lot to convince the President's science advisor to look more seriously at our deficiencies, which I hope they've done. But these, these initiatives and several others would simply not have been possible without the collaboration and support of the RAF Institute of Aviation Medicine. NASA and I are deeply grateful to have had the opportunity to work with your experts on these and other programs, and I'm delighted to be able to offer my heartfelt thanks to this nation for what it, you have taught me and us. Finally, I became seriously concerned in the early 1980s with problems related to rapidly increasing automation in air transport operations. Uh, the most recent article I've seen on that I read yesterday. This diagram illustrates the crux of the problem as I saw it. Note the increasing distance between the pilot and the actual aircraft. The development of fourth-generation highly automated transport aircraft with the introduction of the Boeing 76 and 757 and the later introduction of the Airbus A320 series posed, I thought, unique problems for flight crew. I felt the automation in these airplanes placed us in a new and unknown sphere from a human factors viewpoint, and unfortunately, several fatal accidents reinforced that view. My last major work under NASA auspices dealt with this group of problems and led to a book dedicated to Dr. Ruffell Smith called Aviation Automation, The Search for a Human-Centered Approach. My general conclusions from this work uh, over 10 years are summarized in several perhaps simplistic principles from the book which I'm taking the liberty of showing to you. Can Yes, if you can read it. Yes. The premises are simply that the pilot's responsible for safety of flight and controls are responsible for traffic safe, uh, separation and safe traffic flows. 
But that leads to some axioms. Pilots must remain in command of their flights. Controllers must remain in command of air traffic. And I mention these because all of them have been violated during the last 10 years at one point or another. The corollaries of that are that the pilot and the controller must be actively involved. And of course, a lot of this automation is trying to peripheralize them as well. Both human operators must be adequately informed of what's going on in the system. Operators must be able to monitor the information assisting them. That's very hard to do. The automated systems must therefore be predictable, which they are not in every case. These automated systems must also monitor the human operators because humans continue to make mistakes. And finally, and I, it's probably the most simplistic of all, and I apologize for it, but every intelligent system element in a smart system must know the intent of the other intelligent system elements if they are to remain in control of it. All right, that's enough of that. Probably much too much, and I apologize for that. But especially for the benefit of the younger professionals in the uh, audience, I'd like to mention very briefly in closing the contributions of the late Captain Harry Orlady, who was a United Airlines pilot who was instrumental in helping us focus on operational human factors at NASA. Uh, he and his daughter, Captain Linda Orlady, also of United Airlines, have contributed enormously to our understanding, uh, mine and my colleagues, of the air carrier in industry and its problems. These people, like George Cooper, are the real experts from whom you got to use, uh, whom you must use to learn about the real world of professional aviation the way it actually happens. I think if there is only one point that you take home, it's that. Go find a tame expert. Aviation medicine is indeed a specialty, but is it a discipline or is it a cluster of disciplines? And how does one know, as a young flight surgeon starting out, which ones to emphasize? I certainly didn't, and I found myself very far afield on many occasions, as you may have heard. I found it necessary to learn everything I can about everything I can from anyone who will help me. Why? Because I never know when it's going to come in handy. Uh, did I mention the word dilettante? Yeah. Don't be afraid to be one. To briefly recap my own experience uh, at these various places I've been, I have learned <clears throat> in New York and Vermont Excellent clinical medicine, which is a fundamental to all of this, and the opportunity to learn to fly, which is not fundamental to all of it, but is very useful. In the Air Force, exposure to many kinds of flying, kinds of guys, and kinds of air operations. At RAF Manston, the opportunity to work in the field very close to my pilot patients and their mechanics. When we went to North, Af North Africa the first time in the summer, pilots, it was a piece of cake, but the metal surfaces on the airplanes were 120 to 130, and that's hard to work on. At the IAM, I'm eternally grateful because they taught me what basic and applied research are all about and why they're both equally important and essential. And they gave me a philosophy of protective equipment, which has been helpful throughout my career. And I thank Alastair McMillan, who is sitting here, for that, along with Dr. Ernston. At Ohio State, I learned more math than I wanted to, more aviation physiology, but not more than I needed. Uh, <laughs> more aviation physiology, toxicology, and the elements of civil aviation. At NASA, technology, computers, automation, human factors, and space medicine. And I didn't really want to do the latter either, 
but I did. And back at Ohio State since 1992, because I was a slow learner, cognitive psychology and systems engineering. Oh, and in my personal life during the last several years, more neurology, more clinical medicine, and finally a continuing course on caregiving for patients with dementia. And I didn't know anything about that either. Every one of these areas of research or study has been central to one or more aspects of my life, my personal research and my practice, nearly all of which has been aimed at helping people to keep uh, safe and productive in complex and sometimes dangerous environments and contests. Uh, contexts. I say research or study because a large part of our work in aviation medicine is on topics that do not really lend themselves very well to formal research, or at least formal research as our hospital colleagues understand it. And they tend to scoff at our less formal, even if effective, approaches and methods. I mean, you know, how can you defend a population of one to a scientist. I believe that we learn as much as they do, even if we can't prove it without, at least without killing ourselves. It takes a particular kind of person to feel comfortable in the face of uncertainty in such research. We do have our own ways of dealing with uncertainty, converging evidence, etc., but they often don't satisfy statisticians. Dr. Judith Folkman director of the vascular biology program at Children's Hospital in Boston, died in January of last year of an apparent heart attack at the age of 74. In 1998, Dr. James Watson, the Nobel laureate co-discoverer of DNA, said of him, Judah is going to cure cancer in two more years. And the sign in Dr. Fultman's office read, retirement is, gets in the way of doing what you love. Now, I agree with Dr. Folkman's uh, maxim. I'm on my third retirement and failing on it too. But I would like to add one more thing, which I think Dr. Ernsting, my friend and mentor, might agree with. Uh, retirement can also be very dangerous to your health. If you want to enjoy a long and happy life, as I certainly have, with the companionship, love, and support of my late wife, my daughter and son-in-law, and our two- and four-legged families, and with the help of so many members of the aeromedical community, which of which we've been a part for 54 years, keep working and keep learning. Thank you all very much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the time has come to thank Dr. Billings for that fantastic tour through a life or possibly more than one life in uh, aviation medicine. There's one person uniquely qualified to offer that thanks, and it's not me. Um, you've heard his name mentioned a number of times throughout the proceedings tonight. So I'd like to invite Air Vice Marshal John Ernsting to offer a vote of thanks from the floor. Lady Matthews, uh, fellow trustees, the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you, Charles, for giving us such a fascinating account of your, your career in aviation medicine. I can't help reminiscing that you and I first met in 1955 for during your little first visit to IAM, that um, our paths have crossed repeatedly over the years since then. Um, I think for those of you who sometimes wonder what the media is talking about when it talks about the special relationship between the US and the UK, you have a very good example of, of what, we, what you can achieve in a scientific community by the relationships between ourselves, that the two communities work not only in parallel but linked repeatedly um, 
I've enjoyed many times going to visit Charles and his, his work, and similarly, we've enjoyed having him with us. Um, what can I say about your career? You've made major contributions in the area, particularly of um, aviation safety. Uh, the confidential reporting system, a non-punitive one that you developed at Ames, is now being repeated around the world with great success in, in, in enhancing safety in travel. And as you mentioned, are being applied into medicine in, in many areas, in hospitals and things. And I think that's probably one of the things that we, most of us will remember you for. I am, um, I have a greatly appreciated personally always your uh, support and guidance. Uh, I have to say, uh, I think uh, both of us can trace that back in some ways to Bill Stewart, whose philosophy when I joined the Institute as a very young medical officer on national service uh, was to allow and enhance and encourage basic and applied research to move in parallel. So one of the great things about aviation medicine research is you could move, you could move smoothly from one field to the other. You always kept your uh, enjoyment and joy of uh, research uh, going strongly. And you've uh, uh, given us an account of that on your side of the house tonight, and many people in this audience know how much I've enjoyed my career in the same way of that ability to do uh, freedom to do uh, basic research and to see its application to the services. Thank you again for coming all this way. I'm glad in a way that we were able to arrange the spring to be here and the flowers to be out as against we'd only just lost the snow in, uh, in, our, in, 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 uh, uh, in Columbus. Um, please don't make this your last visit to the United Kingdom. Please remember we're here and come again. Thank you on behalf of everybody here for a most enthralling lecture.